Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 29th of March 2011. For newcomers, look into the website cuttingthroughthematrix.com and you'll see all the official sites that I have listed there and you can bookmark them for future use in case any of the other sites go down. If you find sticking to on downloads of the audios which are available for free, uh, try these alternate sites. These are the only ones I actually own. You'll find other sites out there with my name on them, but they're not actually mine. I don't know who runs most of them. Anyway, uh, these are the official sites. Remember, too, they all carry transcripts, too, as well as the audios. Transcripts in English for print-up of a lot of the talks I've given over the years. And and uh, if you want transcripts in other languages, go into Alan Watt Sentinel, sentinel.eu, and help yourself to the variety offered there. And remember, too, you are the audience that bring me to you. So you can help to support me by buying the books and discs I have for sale on the website. You'll find out how to, how to order if you go into cuttingthroughthematrix.com and, uh, and methods of payment too. From the U.S. to Canada, remember, you can still use an, a, a personal check. You can use an international postal money order. Some people send cash. And you can also use PayPal to order or to donate if you want to use um uh, a donation uh, button to order, just uh, send follow it up by an email with a name, address and order and I'll get it out to you and across the world, it's a Western Union MoneyGram uh, or Cash or PayPal again to order and remember too, straight donations are certainly welcome because it gets awfully expensive uh, keeping this whole uh, flying uh, kite on the go and believe me, it's tied together with bits of strings and wire and all the rest of it. However, that's the way things are. As we go through these uh, not really perilous times, it's just a big shake-up for the world to get us used to a new form of being basically ordered around. Uh, before, we were kept in a form of um, what Isaiah Berlin called a, a sort of negative freedom. Negative freedom means that basically, and that was a mentor to Tony Blair, but uh, what it means really to the philosophers is keep the people in the dark, tell them to have a good time, leave them enough cash in their pockets to have a good time, take the rest off them, of course, and don't keep them informed on the big things that are happening across the world, keep them uh, ignorant of the amalgamations of continents together, that kind of stuff, that was what's called negative. Positive freedom is when they get you all on board for a great task like a war or a war to save the environment or something like that. Uh, kind of, we're all in it together, we're all going forward to some vague utopia. That's called positive freedom. And they're trying to get that up, of course, with the children that are being raised right now and going through the, the, the state education systems. They're being taught to live in a life of a kind of Sovietized system, like they had the, the young communist leagues and so on, uh, all going towards this vague utopia. And that's what they want for the whole world, where we, we share everything across the world, uh, and um, basically you'll have international corporations 
through which you'll be sharing, of course, and paying awfully dearly as well, because it's to be a privatized world, but run on the Soviet scheme of things. So that's where we're going through right now. We're watching incredible plunder across the planet. Most folk don't care because they're so used to wars. Now it's one war after another. And they say the first casualty of war is truth. And that certainly is true. Uh, you'll never get truth about any war. Any war whatsoever, in fact, you'll never get any truth of the real machinations behind it. And um, I think it was a top advisor to FDR said the same thing about politics. He says, he said, in politics there's always a good reason for something, and then there's a real reason. We're never given the real reason. But we'll be back with more after these messages. Hi folks, we're back and cutting through the matrix and of course we've had uh, a couple of weeks now of the meltdown, continuing meltdown in Japan and everyone's either worried about it or, or, or totally ignorant of it in fact and it's amazing how many Canadians don't even know what's happening and have no interest whatsoever because they're so well conditioned by the mainstream here uh, to just listen to experts and if experts aren't coming on telling them what to think about things, they don't think at all. And that's basically how it goes. In fact, the front page, I think, of the Toronto Sun today was about um, Celine Dion being pestered by some doctor in Canada and a judge's order to, to tell me to stop it. That was the mainstream news, front page on the Toronto Sun. That's what you get, you see, at, at low level, mushroom level. And um, generally it's sports, a big picture of somebody grabbing a ball, you know, an adult at that too. I stopped that when I was small. But anyway, apparently it's very very popular. And that's what they give you for mainstream. So it's, it's quite amazing how, and it's true what Brzezinski and others did say, that the people, the public, would depend on their media for giving them, or doing their reasoning for them. In other words, if the media too doesn't tell you to be worried about something, you won't worry about it, even if you, you should be worried about it. And if the mainstream media ignores something, then it's obviously not important and you'll ignore it too. And Canadians are awfully obedient people. But this article here is from the west coast of Canada, and it says, um, Seaweed from Barclay Sound is being tested for radiation traces resulting from Japan's damaged, <laughs> very polite in Canada's damaged, I think it's kaput, Fukushima nuclear reactors. As Simon Fraser University nuclear researchers have detected increased levels of iodine-131 from rainwater and seaweed in the lower mainland. Small amounts of the element have also been detected in Barclay Sound seaweed. We see 1311 uh, one in Barclay Sound seaweed. It can't qualify the activity since the sample is wet, said the, the nuclear researcher Chris uh, Starosta. As of now, the levels we are seeing are not harmful to humans. I like that too. You know, it's like across the whole world, radiation is not harmful anymore, according to the, you know, the experts. They've all sort of colluded together to tell us it's not harmful. I like this scale for measurement. You've got minuscule and, and million times lower and, and not harmful. And that's awfully... <laughs> so that shows you the mushroom level we're at where they don't even bother giving us a, a scale where we can measure things for ourselves and think about it. The samples are being dried for further testing. The samples will be shipped to the university three weeks, three, three times a week for regular testing. 
Uh, says specifically the seaweed was taken from Eagle Bay in Barclay Sound, and the area was chosen for a sampling because the university already networks with marine researchers there. They believe that iodine-131 got here through the atmosphere. That's why they're experts. It says um, it was transported via the jet stream from Japan to the west coast and fell down with the rain, Starosta said. The increased levels could only have come from the reactors in Fukushima, Japan, which were damaged by an earthquake two weeks ago. That's for the Canadians that haven't heard about it yet. <laughs> but iodine-131 is most likely anywhere since it falls down with the rain, and I'm sure it's all across the country, actually, and has been for you know, at least last Wednesday or before when it was due to hit, and uh, if I said a week and a half now, I guess, and it's already across in Europe as well. So that's for Canadians, anyway, not to worry, because it's minuscule, and that's a good sliding scale to measure things by, and it's good enough for us. So that was that one. And then we find, too, uh, that... Um, They've also found it in, in Glasgow. It says, uh, so it's going right across the Atlantic, of course. We know that. We know it hit France as well. It says, um, traces of radioactive fallout from Japan's uh, stricken plant have been found in Glasgow. They're described as extremely low. So you've got that extremely low scale again for mushrooms, you know. And the Scottish government has told Sky News there's no threat to public health. So I feel awfully, awfully, awfully much better now. The traces of the iodine-131 uh, were picked up on Friday by air samplers, which is located in the city. The Scottish Environment Protection Agency, everyone's got one now, you see, uh, said the value of the sample is extremely low and consistent with similar reports from other European countries, such as Iceland and Switzerland. And um, Dr. James Gemmel, SEPA's radioactive substances manager, said the concentration of iodine detected is extremely low and it's not of concern for the public or the environment. Yeah, I, I, it's quite amazing. I mean, generally wouldn't even tell you anything at all. They're so arrogant these days, aren't they? Yeah. The fact that such a, a low concentration of this radionuclide was detected demonstrates how effective the surveillance program for, for radioactive substances is in the UK. But they won't give us a scale, eh? Just very low. <laughs> we truly are in mushroom land. So anyway, uh, they've gone about their wonderful systems for detection and so on. And um, the, the increased security, etc., or the level of scrutiny, I should say, to provide ongoing public assurance during this period. I think they've got ten parts, ten new uh, terms to use for it. There's a million times lower than, than, than worrying about, and then, then there's minuscule, and then, then there's a wee bit for the Scots ones. They got wee bit, so wee bit radioactive, and not to worry, and so on. But uh, that's what you get at this bottom level. <laughs> Uh, it really is, it really is laughable the way they look at us now. You see, you are in a system of total authoritarian control now, with where academia as well as now all the rest of them said they're in charge of your brains, you see. And they take it for granted you, that you don't use your brains for yourselves, and they take it for granted you're all awfully stupid, and therefore you, you, they can't explain anything in detail to you because it's just too much for you to cope with. So they don't bother at all, they give you small, minuscule and wee bits. So, that's where we live in this world today of academia and experts. It's awfully reassuring. And what's interesting too is when you go into what's happening. Now we know in Japan too, they keep increasing the safe doses of uh, radiation, all kinds of radiation, you see. And I, I was thinking about that. I mean, the, the, the reason they put legal safe doses before is because with all their experimentation on animals and so on, they knew the effects if they went above certain limits. But it's okay now when it comes to humans because we're a, a renewable resource, it appears to be. 
and uh, they can just up the limits, you see. It's almost like a, it's okay, it's okay, you have officially decreed this is now safe, this a thousand times more is now safe. And it's kind of like changing gravity. It's like saying, okay, they've just declared a new law that if you fall out of a plane at 10,000 feet, you'll, you'll fall at half the speed that you used to. I mean, this is how stupid and crazy this is, but this is the guff that they feed the general public. It really is. It's just amazing. But I guess it will reassure a lot of people out there who watch sports and soaps and things like that. But it says here, The EPA is preparing to dramatically increase permissible radioactive releases in drinking water. This is for us now. Food and soil after radiological incidents, according to public employees for environmental responsibility. What is termed a guidance um, uh, that EPA is considering, as opposed to a regulation, does not require public airing before it's decided upon. Isn't that nice? As his EPA officials contacted today in the Atlanta and D.C. offices had no response on the issue as of 6 p.m. The radiation guides called Protective Action Guides, or PAGs, are protocols for responding to radiological events ranging from nuclear power plant accidents to dirty bombs. Drinking water, for example, would have a huge increase in allowable public exposure to radioactivity, the group says. That would include a nearly 1,000-fold increase in strontium-90. That's a really nasty one, that one. A 3,000 to 100,000-fold hike for iodine-131. An almost 25,000 rise for nickel-63. The new radiation guidance would also allow long-term cleanup standards Uh, thousands of times more lax than anything EPA has ever before accepted, permitting doses to the public that EPA itself estimates would cause a cancer in as much as every fourth person exposed, the group says. These relaxed standards are opposed by public health professionals inside EPA, according to documents uh, PEER said it obtained under the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, PEER, or PEER, uh, is a national alliance of local, state, and federal resource professionals. So anyway, you can all be reassured that, uh, that if, it, if it gets worse than it is, not that we know what's bigger than minuscule and uh, a thousand times smaller and, and we, uh, if we ever get up to it's a wee bit high, then I guess we start worrying and they'll, they'll up the standards till it's, uh, the new high is we again, and that's how they'll do it to us. Wonderful, isn't it? We live in Disneyland, you see, at the bottom here. And it goes on and on, really. Even <laughs> even the first two, is within, when they went and invaded Libya, it was on the books for years, remember, too. All of the new American centuries, uh, plans for invasion of Afghanistan, Iraq. They wanted Egypt uh, and Syria and all the rest of those countries to fall one after another. And it takes years of planning, especially training the groups that are sent in. Years of how to go in there, infiltrate, get into universities, start teaching the students, agitate, form cells and all the rest of it, and then come out with the final plan. And it takes years and years of planning. And that's a speciality of Brzezinski, who said he was involved in the, the, the demonstrations in, in for instance, um, Iran last year. So they're doing the same thing in these countries. We know that, too. And they back it up, too, with professional mercenaries, too, who are sent in. Now, these supposed rebels, you know, uh, guys waving their rifles and all that, the farces have already formed uh, the company, basically, to funnel the, the oil through to the big boys who want it for themselves, of course, 
and they even got the bank set up to do it. I mean, it's just so amazing. Like, you didn't think they were, that they were so efficient, did you? Uh, neither did I. But anyway, it says here, uh, Jason Gamel, an analyst at uh, Mercari Capital, discusses the outlook for Libya's oil production and crude prices. Gamel speaks with Barry Louis on Bloomberg Television's In the Loop, it says. Libyan rebels in Benghazi said they have created a new national oil company to replace the corporation controlled by leader Muammar Gaddafi, whose assets were frozen by the UN Security Council. See how it was all worked way in advance, eh? Way in advance, even, you know, taking over the oil, making sure it keeps flowing, and all the rest of it. The Transitional National Council released a, a statement announcing the decision made at a March 19th meeting it was made long before that, folks, believe you me, to establish the Libyan oil company as a supervisor authority on oil production and policies in the country. Back with more after this break. Hi, folks, we're back, cunning through the matrix, and really about Libya, too, and how, how they're already set up this, uh, how they're going to funnel the oil through, and the banks that's to go through, and all the rest of it. That takes time, but it's already done, just like that magic, you see. And, uh, of course, you know there's bigger hands in this pie there, this oil, oil field pie uh, called Libya, because it's one of the biggest producers in North Africa there. So, anyway, I'll put this, these links up, too, at cuttingthroughthematrix.com at the end of the, 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 this particular broadcast. And we also know, too, that one little one, too, is interesting. I think synchronicities always interest me because this article is from the 24th of March, and it was about research done in Japan, where it says that researcher Takehiko Ogawa of Yokohama City University not only grew healthy mouse sperm in the laboratory, but also used them to produce fertile offspring, according to the study. They're grown outside the body. The sperm were produced in a test tube from the cells taken from newborn mouse testicles and then injected into eggs to produce the to 12 healthy babies, four male and eight female, which were all fertile and, and able to have their own babies in adulthood. It's really exciting, said Mary Ann Handel, who's got a handle on things, obviously, a reproductive genetics research scientist at Maine's Jackson's Laboratory. I really do think he's really achieved a goal that a lot of people have tried over the years. Well, are we going to need it in Japan? and elsewhere across the world after this meltdown, because this is going to affect people all over the globe here, but especially in the Northern Hemisphere, it would seem. So it's amazing that came out about the same time as the nuclear reactor has gone down and melting, and uh, it's just astonishing to me how these synchronicities, synchronicities just appear out of the blue uh, as they try and destroy one type of thing called humanity. They're also trying to find ways to breed them artificially and create them artificially. And we know, too, that last year there was articles coming out, too, where I think in Britain or somewhere they'd already taken female stem cells and turned them into spermatozoa. So it's amazing what they can do these days. And they seem to all know why they're doing it now. Maybe it's all becoming clear. Who knows, eh? Now, I've talked about common purpose, for instance, in Britain. And it's really a Council on Foreign Relations uh, branch, it would seem, because they go by all, all the Chatham House rules, as they call it, 
of what to say to the public, what not to say, and the way they recruit their people. But part of their job is to recruit youngsters, spot them very young, train them to be future world leaders. In America, in Canada, and elsewhere across the globe, they have the same system under different names. But one of them, as mentioned in the BBC News, is how do you spot a future world leader? And it says, um, I guess you listed the ones who, the, the, the well-known ones who belong to this particular group. Margaret Thatcher, Nicholas Sarkozy, Gordon Brown, Julia Gillard, Ted Heath, Morgan uh, Svangari, it says in Tony Blair, it says, a U.S. scheme to pinpoint future VIPs has spent 70 years, 70 years, introducing power brokers to the American way. So how can you tell who will one day be a head of state? I've said this for years. They know years ahead who they're putting in. It says they're out there somewhere embarking on their relentless climb to the top. The next generation of politicians, cultural pioneers, nice term, that cultural pioneers, business executives and media voices are starting their first jobs, just desperate to escape obscurity, determined to make a name for themselves. All you have to do is find them. Predicting who will one day run our lives might not be an easy task, but a little-known scheme run by the U.S. State Department. That was the first department, by the way, that the communists took over and the CFR took over uh, many, many moons ago. Has demonstrated an uncanny capacity to, to pinpoint these leaders in waiting. It's received little attention during its histories because they want to keep themselves obscure. But since 1940, the International Visitor Leader Program, sounds rather innocuous too, International Visitor Leader Program, uh, has proved remarkably prescient when it comes to guessing who might one day govern the planet. And it says, a history of talent spotting. In 1940, the U.S. begins cultural exchanges for the first time under the guidance of, guess who, Nelson Rockefeller. 1948, Smith-Mund Act creates agency to promote a better understanding of the United States and other countries and to increase mutual understanding. It sounds very benign, doesn't sound like picking leaders, does it? But it is, you know. 1954, leader program established, later renamed International Visitor Program. 2004, name changed to International Visitor Leadership Programs. It's always been a leadership program. This is part of the highly prestigious and expensive program. Participants are hand-picked to spend typically three weeks visiting Washington, D.C., and three additional towns or cities meeting their counterparts and other VIPs and experts, all highly valuable networking experience for any ambitious young man or woman on the climb. Of the current cabinet, some 11 members are alumni of the scheme, according to the U.S. Embassy in London. Former Prime Ministers Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, Margaret Thatcher, Edward Heath were all participants early in their careers. They picked it to college and university. Nor are British heads of government the only ones to have been talent-spotted. French President Nicolas Sarkozy, his Afghan counterpart Hamid Karzai, Australian Prime Minister Julia Gillard, and Zimbabwean Premier Morgan Svangari are among ser- uh, serving leaders who have passed through the project's ranks. In the UK alone, over 2,500 citizens have travelled to the US as part of the IVLP. That would be a lot of the common purpose bunch and so on. But those hoping to apply for this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, admission is strictly invitation only. Exactly the same as the CFR, you see. Conspiracy theorists warn the scheme is all about an imperial power meddling in the affairs of sovereign regimes, seducing their future political leaders and moulding them into Washington-approved candidates. Well, that's exactly what it is, you know. Now we're back with more after this break.
You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix and talking about the International Visitor Leadership Program where future leaders are picked. And it isn't just in politics too, they also pick novelists, you see, and people who change their culture. And they like people who are involved in social activities for to change, uh, well, I should say the socialism period, basically. And it goes on and on about different people and how they pick them and so on. And they also pick world leaders in other countries, too. It really is just a branch, again, as I say, of the Chatham House, Royal of International Affairs, obviously. And it's also uh, related to the Cecil Rhodes Foundation as well, because that's what their job was, too, to create future world leaders. It's all this ongoing same thing under different names in different countries. And I'll also put up their main site there, too, uh, from the actual site leadership program site. And you can look down all the different contributors they get from the big uh, corporations and foundations and endowments and all the rest of it. It's quite amazing, all this massive, massive amount of money they get thrown their way. And uh, they're into every nation across the planet, training future leaders, as they picking them from college novelists and people like that, people who change the culture and change your way of thinking. It's awfully important to control the world by changing the way that people think. Now, there's callers on the line. Is Bob from Texas there? Hello? Uh, yes, uh, Alan. Yes. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Okay. I, I, I wanted, I'll, I'll be real quick here. <clears throat> Yesterday I was once again going to work and listening to NPR, kind of my routine, uh, and they had mentioned, and I've thought about you. I thought you'd be interested in this. It mentioned uh, Brzezinski, and I can't uh-huh. pronounce his first name. Zygniew, yeah. A- anyway, uh, they happened to mention that it was his birthday, March 28th. Uh-huh. And yep. I thought that was odd because, you know, they didn't mention anybody else's birthday. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, they mentioned his birthday. And then it was that was it, and they broke and went to something else. And uh, I, I just thought that you would find that kind of interesting that they would just kind of single his birthday out and, you know, among, you know, so many people. And well, I, I'm he's, also he's... finding that it's hard to find books. I, I'm kind of in a rural area uh-huh. in, in Texas, yeah. and, you know, I've hit a couple of the uh, local libraries, and it's really hard to find any, uh, you know, writings from them. And if you go online, their, their books are you know, they're pretty expensive, like Quigley, and yeah. Brzezinski. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I started off, I, I used to give out the names of the books. And I would mention at the start, I said, you can get Brzezinski there for five bucks here and there. And after a, a couple of times I did that, it shot up to about $80 and then 100 And I realized people were making money off it. <laughs> yeah. But you can also try interlibrary loans if you, if your local library does that. They generally do, and they can go all over the state looking for that and send it to you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'd still like to paint your dog if you're if you're interested. I I dropped you an email on that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. Hey, thanks a lot. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye now. Now, it's interesting too. The agenda twenty. Everything's getting rammed down in our throats right now, while we're most folk are distracted with Libya. And that kind of stuff, and the meltdowns. Most are, see, most in Canada, you don't even know there's a meltdown going on, I think. But anyway, 
uh, things that really, the, the usual things that occupy their minds, like I say, uh, Celine Dion being pestered by some doctor. That's front page news, and uh, that's good enough for the people in mushroom uh, world, I suppose. But the local agenda 21, also called the Millennium Project, by the way, from the United Nations, and it really is based on the Communist Manifesto, because Karl Marx talked about a united America and then a united Europe and a united um, Far Eastern conglomerate too. Uh, they went into, he touched on even an Africa possibly, which might be, even be amalgamated eventually into the greater mainland and stuff like that. So we're living through all of this happening as they amalgamate all their plundered countries in the Middle East as well. And they'll keep them all fighting each other internally for a while too, while the big monopolies go in with their private mercenary troops and just plunder the oil, no taxes to pay, nothing like they're doing with Iraq. But Agenda 21 goes on, and you'd understand the Communist Manifesto, as I've mentioned many, many times before, to do with end of marriage. That's almost here now. I think it's pretty well here for most people. And um, uh, again, too, uh, no private property was to be another one down the road to tax you out of it. And um, it also eventually touches on transportation. Understand in all Sovietized countries, you needed a special permit to, to leave those countries. Even if you're in a higher occupation in the Politburo, you had to have a pass to come and, come and go across borders. They love borders, actually, even though they call it one big USSR block at that time during the Cold War. And so the restriction of travel is really important for a controlled society. And this article here is um, from the Sovereign Independent, and, and it talks about um, what they're doing now. It says, in the usual BBC f- fashion, the BBC are getting us used to the idea of cars being a thing of the past. And I said that in one of the first shows I was on back in the 90s. And uh, as I said, for some reason, I've never, ever uh, upgraded this the internal combustion engine. Everything else has is, is gone up exponentially in advance, electronics and so on. But no, the same old engine. So they don't plan to have us driving in the future. I knew that then. But I was a small boy, you know. Anyway, it says, of course, they say that they reject the idea of banning cars in central London. But of course, they have to plant the idea of no cars into our skulls so that at a later stage, they can take it to the next stage in the usual incremental way. We wouldn't even bother considering the ludicrous idea otherwise, but we have to be trained like Pavlovian dogs or Skinnerian pigeons to accept this nonsense, and it has to start somewhere. The internal combustion engine is carbon bad, unless you're one of the inbred psychopathic elites, of course. We are to be herded off the rural areas and stuffed into the already overcrowded cities so we can be exterminated in the H.G. Wellsian fashion. And that's true, I've mentioned, and it's good that even this paper's picked up on the, the books I've mentioned about Wells and so on. Because Wells was a, a front man for the group that, that uh, eventually was called Royal Institute for International Affairs, and he also belonged to another branch of that group called the Fabian Society. And we know that the co-founders, uh, his other co-founders, George Bernard Shaw, for instance, and it's up on YouTube, I've given it over a few times, where you can hear him and see him, Mr. Shaw talking about bringing out a nice gas, if the scientists would create a nice gas, humane gas, of course, to kill off the public, the ones that we were unfit to live, and stuff like that. You know, lovely, lovely bunch of people. But when you see who their masters are, uh, you're not surprised about the incredible arrogance of them, and they truly do believe they are the most evolved species on the planet. But um, what Wells actually said 
in, in uh, the, the, a modern utopia was a true objection to slavery is, is not that it's unjust, unjust to the inferior. That's, that's, not, that's their point of view. There's only one sane and logical thing to be done with an inferior race, and that's to exterminate them. Now, there are various ways of exterminating a race, and most of them are cruel. You may end it with fire and sword after the old Hebrew fashion, or you may enslave it and work it to death, as the Spaniards did with the Caribs. You may set its boundaries and then poison it slowly with deleterious commodities, as the Americans do with most of their Indians. You may incite it to wear clothing to which it's not accustomed, and to live under new and strange conditions that will expose it to infectious diseases to which you yourself are immune, as the missionaries do with the Polynesians. You may resort to honest, simple murder, as we English did with the Tasmanians, or you can maintain such conditions as conduce to race suicide, as the British administration does in Fiji. Suppose then for a moment that there is an all-round inferior race, a modern utopia is under the hard logic of life, and it would have to exterminate such a race as quickly as it could. So for all you in Britain and elsewhere who are now in the lower classes, including the middle ones who have fallen down the bottom through the, the holes in the mortgages and through the houses, he's talking about you, you see. And it says here, he goes on to talk about, um, it says, um, about the internal combustion engine is to be phased out. Now that is true. There's other articles out on it too about uh, the phasing out of the internal combustion engine. And the United Nations has also put articles on it, uh, about it as well. And, um, it's definitely going to come about because in Agenda 21 it says there will be no private privately owned vehicles, it will be essential vehicles only. That's VIPs again, very important people, and um, police, military, ambulance maybe, and that will be it pretty well, I think, pretty well. So I'll put up these links as well. Now, <laughs> this is an article here. It says, the water we drink, and I mentioned it before, Canada's water could be the answer for anticipated global water shortages. What it is, you see, they're privatizing everything across the world. And by the time we, we get to hear about anything, they give you, uh, your, it's almost like a preamble that embeds itself in your head as to why they're doing it. In reality, they've already set up the corporations that are going to take the water out of countries. It's been, all been decided with governments about it too. And it's also going to mean that you'll be paying even more in your own country for the water, which the big boys are shipping abroad to other and selling, they're not giving it away to poor people in third world countries. Water literally is to be one of the major currencies of the future, and so is food. Obviously, food, water, shelter, heat, clothing—that's what you need to live, right? And these guys are going after everything that you need to live. So this, I'll put this article up, and it was. Um, it says global demand for water is projected to exceed supplies by 40% in 2030, and Canada may be the answer to minimizing water shortages. It's estimated the next 20 years, one-third of the world will only have half the water it needs to cover daily needs. That's because we can't afford it anymore. To prevent these shortages, researchers are scrambling to develop technologies and practices to reduce water consumption, discover new reprocessing techniques, and improve infrastructure. And then Canada's water experts, we've got water experts here too, are well suited to assist in the efforts as they've gained valuable experience from managing 9% of the world's fresh water supplies. But it's to be privatized, you see. Everything in this new fascist, communist, global system with the fascists on top and the masses of bureaucrats running us all in a communized, socialist, collectivist fashion, uh, that's how it's to be run, you see. And it's interesting that came out because 
across Ontario, uh, you've got articles being put up by the governments for different provinces as well, apart from Ontario, about the way we should now look at water. And uh, but we can't see it the same way we used to see it. What I've seen a completely different light altogether. And it's, it's again, it's a Sunstein way of, of bringing up a topic, uh, using a trial balloon, and, and getting you to uh, gradually uh, change the way that you think about water. They're even suggesting to, to Ontarians that that we can learn a lot from third world countries, where one bucket of water will do a family all day long. You know. I mean, the reason they're coming into Canada from these third world countries is because they're sick of trying to live in one bucket of water all day darn long. But this is the stuff they're telling us in Canada now, but we should take some of the tips from these countries. No kidding, you know. This is this is the absurdity of it all. And uh, one of the links I'm putting up, it's, it's called The Future of Water. And they give you nice pictures because they'd like to give you pictures and stuff. And there's the three little children, and you've got a white one and a, and a black one and a Chinese one, all smiling happily and their feet in the, in the lake, obviously. And it says, from everyday efficiency to global change, passionate citizens and experts explore the future of water. You see, it's not for ordinary folk who are not passionate about it. It's for these kind of future leader types who must be involved in some social change in their communities. And then it goes, um, Water has fast become one of the hottest topics of the 21st century, with water-related news studies and publications receiving regular media attention. Mostly we hear about global issues with scarcity as a focus in crisis, as a driver of discussion and innovation. And then, I'm sorry I don't have the music here, because in Canada, whenever they're trying to brainwash you, it's generally a woman who speaks, by the way, with a kind of low voice, and then they have this music behind her, but I don't have that. So it says, although we have had our times of drought and floods, most Canadians have a different experience with water. If anything, the Canadian perspective has been one of abundance. After all, our wealth of lakes and rivers forms a key part of our national identity. Yet as Oliver Brand is, Associate Director at the University of Victoria, P-O-L-I-S project on ecological governance. Ecological governance, did you vote these guys in? No. And water sustainability points out, even Canada, with its apparent water wealth, is increasingly facing the prospects of a water-scarce future. Really? A result of relying too heavily on large-scale build infrastructures and mentality of limitless supply. And when you really go through it all, what they're trying to tell you, and it fits in with Agenda 21, it's just too expensive to have all these pipes going out to all these homes and everything. We've got to rethink. And you, you all have to rethink how we're going to use water and, until you start to take, take something that was for granted and, and it's going to be in your mind every single day. Because, mind you, these same private corporations will be running your systems as well. After all, they're sold off every other kind of power you've got and to these big boys, and they're all international corporations. One day you'll be shot for, for going up to a lake and having a, a sip of water when you live in Canada. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding about that. That will happen. You'll live to see that day. It will happen. Anyway, it goes into a tears Green Energy and Economy Act. Doesn't that sound nice? Green Energy and Economy Act. Don't even know when you burn green, green wood, it, it gets a lot of smoke. Anyway, against traction, and the Water Opportunities Act comes into being. Now, the Water Opportunities Act are for the big international boys to make their bids to see who's going to get the dibs on owning Canada's water supply. And no doubt, too, like everything else that the public build up, because your tax money built all that infrastructure for the water supplies, did the same with your electricity supplies. They handed that over to 
to, to different power companies. They'll do the same with your water too. And you don't get a darn thing back, you know. They might give you a chitty for maybe a day's water supply, being awful nice, these new masters, and then you'll be paying through the nose for it when you got for your little buckets, you know, for the whole family of water, taking tips from the third world. Because they want you to live in utter austerity, and you better understand they're going to bring you down to a primitive state. And people really don't get that at all. They don't get it. The TV goes on when you switch it on. It's still working. Same comedies are playing. Same trivia is, is, is shown in your Facebook celebrities. They can't imagine this. Is, it's all been done right now as we live. That's the beauty of it. It's all been done now as they're all entranced with, well, it's normal, my favorite soap came on, you know, whoa, and stuff like that. So I'll put that link up too. And you can peruse that. And um, it's just astonishing, as I say, that these guys write the agendas maybe 50 years, sometimes 70 years in advance, and we live through it because they never change their plans, you understand, for this world society of theirs. They've never, ever changed their plans or altered their plans. Just look at the new American century. Look at the countries they wanted to invade one after another in the 90s. And here you are living through the last of them going down. The last of them. Well, how bad does it really get? How bad does it really get? Um, oh, radars across the border of Canada and the States, military ones, to stop the drugs going across, they say. The new Soviet, indeed. Back with more after this. Hi folks, we're back in Cutting Through the Matrix and from Washington it says the Federal Department of Homeland Security will deploy military-grade radar on the northern border which officials say will help stop airborne drug tr- smuggling. Homeland Security Secretary Janet Napoleon, uh, sorry that's a Freudian slip again, announced the decision in response to a request from Senator Charles E. Schumer, the Senator's office said Wednesday. Mr. Schumer uh, had outlined his request in a conference call with reporters saying drug smugglers elude capture by flying aircraft below where typical radar can detect them. Military-type radar will detect those aircraft, he said. Mr. Schumer was responding to a U.S. Government Accountability Office report detailing that weakness along the U.S.-Canada border that exists. Only 32 of more than 4,000 miles of the border are secure, the GAO found. So, look, it's always been that way, and there was no problems before. These recent shocking G, shocking, oh, it's definitely Homeland Security. These shocking GAO reports make it clear that we have a long way to go when it comes to securing your northern border and keeping drugs out of bordering states. And unfortunately, deploying this military-grade radar technology on the front lines has already proven efficient in detecting low-flying planes that can choke, be chock full of illegal drugs, Mr. Schumer said in his press release. So here you are, the new Soviet indeed, and that's why they're, they're, they keep putting out new new cards, special permits to travel into the U.S., clear pass, then, and then a clear pass two and three and all the rest of it, until the general population won't be able to move out at all. You see, that's how they do it. Even if it's going to be a world system, 
It says free flow of labor under their most favored nation trading status and all that stuff across the world is selected and approved labor only. That's the point. You see, you won't be just able to go anywhere you want anymore. And I've mentioned too about how the pretty well put the beekeeping business out in Canada by heading all this. Most beekeepers are small guys, small time beekeepers, even though they might supply lots of honey. Uh, they're not, not a full-time business for most of them, and they regulated them to death from the federal government, made them get stainless steel spinners and special buildings built for the inspectors to come and suddenly inspect the honey that had never caused any problems before. Well, they've done the same with free-range eggs. See, anything that, that where you are independent of the system and not interdependent, it means that you're going to get shut down. Free-range egg bans uh, shuts a bed and breakfast this side off in the East Coast of Canada. Then it says... Um, the Paul Offer gathers his eggs from his 75 hens twice a day, but he won't be able to serve them at his bed and breakfast any longer. It says the APEI bed and breakfast that has been operating for decades has decided to close down next year rather than stop serving eggs from its own hens because of a government order. The doctors in Tyne Valley, northwest Summerside, also operates an organic farm. Paul and Jean Offer sell, sell their organic vegetables and free-range eggs at the Charlottetown uh, farmers market and offer produce to customers at the doctors in at bread, breakfast and dinner time. But after these are serving their own eggs, the provincial Department of Health has told them they have to stop. The department said it's a long-standing policy that food service operations can only use federally inspected eggs. That means bought, that's from the big boys, the big international corporations, where you crack the egg open and this watery stuff. It's, I think it's thinner than water, it just comes, just flows out of it. That's what they call an egg uh, from these big uh, farm-type uh, systems they've got, these factory farms. So they're putting everybody out of business, and you won't be able to feed yourself eventually. That will be forbidden in this new world order, of course. We know that on this, of the listeners to this particular program. We all know that, too. Interdependence means you must be completely dependent for everything you need from those that own them, the big system. From Hamish Myself from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me. Your God or your gods go with you.